you would please turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. Is this in his name? Amen. 
as we're getting started this evening, we're not going to look at everything that happens in these chapters. I, have, I cut out literally like three pages of notes. It's just, there's just too much here. And so we're not going to look at everything in these chapters. There's some, there's some walking, there's some fighting, there's some significant people die. But we're going we're to hit a few of the major events. And the first major event has to do with the, the people's arrival at this place, Kadesh. It's in verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. Numbers 20 is, is, is really a turning point in the history of Israel. When they, when they come to this place, it's, it's actually a place that they're, that they're coming back to. And this place is significant because they were here 40 years earlier. And this is where Moses, he had sent the men to spy out the promised land. And those spies, they came back to this place and they gave a bad report to the people. That's, that's Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And the people, they were discouraged by that bad report because it was all bad news. They said, they said there's giants in the land. They said, we have no chance of going to that place, the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they refused to believe that God would actually give them the land. And essentially they refused to believe that God was unstoppable. These giants would in fact be able to stop God's plans. And the result, God had told them that no one, because of their unbelief, from that generation would enter the promise. They would wander the wilderness for 40 years until all of that generation And so it's, it's significant here that, that Israel is here, that they're, they're at this place 40 years later. They, they come back to Kadesh. They're at the end of the, this 40 years, and the previous generation is almost gone. And that's what, part of what the death of Miriam is. It's the second verse, or second sentence in, in verse 1 there. Uh, that's part of what her death signifies. They're, they're going to begin the journey out of the wilderness into the promised land. And this is a turning point in their history. They're going to find out how unstoppable God really is. Now in verse 1, when we read, we, we read, The sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zen in the first month, and the people they stayed in Kadesh. The, the question that comes to mind is, how did they get there? Like, like, how did they come to this place? And how, how did they get anywhere in Numbers? And how did, how did they know where to go in the wilderness and when to go there? Walked, obviously. But the answer, the answer is that God led them. God was leading them. You don't have to turn there, but if, if, if we go, go back to Numbers chapter 9, 40 years earlier, before the wilderness, before that rebellion, when Israel was still back at Mount Sinai, it says in, in Numbers 9, 15, it says, now on, now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until the morning. So it was continuously, the cloud would cover it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. God, he made his presence visible in the form of this cloud and fire. And then a little further, 9.17, it says, Whenever the cloud was, was lifted from over the tent, 
Afterwards, the sons of Israel were then sat. And in the place where the clouds settled down, there the sons of Israel were camped. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp as long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle. They were made camp. And he goes on to say that whether the clouds, uh, the clouds stayed there for uh, a couple of days or a month or a year, Israel was continually led by this cloud and pillar of fire. And so now, 40 years later, when Israel, they, they come to this place, they do so because God, in the cloud, has led them here. And we can go back and look at the, the, it says in Deuteronomy that the Lord commanded them to go. But when you go back and you look at Exodus, you'll see that, that, that the, just the cloud lifting up and going, that's synonymous, synonymous with God's command to go. So God, He led them there in this cloud. And that wasn't obvious to me at first when I had read that. Um, I didn't realize that they were still following the cloud. And for 40 years in the wilderness, they've been following this cloud and this pillar of fire. You see, Nehemiah 9 provides just, just beautiful commentary on God's leading of, of Israel. It says in uh, Nehemiah 9, verses 19 to 21, he said, Of God, you, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them all the enemy, the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were go. You gave them the good spirit to instruct them. Your manna did not pull from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not out. You see that? You see that God never left them. He never left them. Never. All of the horrible accounts and all of the horrible rebellion we read about, never. He was with them the entire time. He was with them every single day. He was with them every single night, preserving and leading, even though they had sinned and were experiencing the judgment of God. The writer of Hebrews, he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 31 when he says, when, when Moses says of God, or God says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And see, Moses in Deuteronomy 31, he was proclaiming that to the same people of Numbers 20 who were about to enter the promised land. He's going to tell them that when they get up around Moab and they're about to enter into the promised land. He's going to preach Deuteronomy to them. And he's going to tell them that. And quoting Moses, he's presenting Christians with the reality of God's character as faithful. Our God is faithful. He's good. He's faithful. He's the God who stays with his people. He never forsakes them. And then a couple of verses later in Hebrews 13, after quoting Moses about the God who never leaves and the God who never forsakes, he then speaks of Jesus in those same unchanging, immutable terms, saying Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is this unchanging, never-forsaking God. He is the unchanging, never-forsaking God of Numbers 20, verse 1, who was with Israel those 40 years, who never left them, who never forsook them, who never changed. And Numbers 21 holds that God out to us tonight. That's the God that, that 
that Numbers 20 is holding out to us. So, so, so where are you right now? What's, what's happening in your life? I know that for, for some of you, just by what little has been put on the ground and made, and made public. Some, some of you, it's a, just catastrophe. You're just experiencing turmoil. Some of you are experiencing things that maybe you've shared a little bit, but you're, you're holding back. You, some, some of you, you're, you're dealing with things that you, you have not told a soul. You're barely hanging on. I say again, Numbers 20, verse 1, holds out this God to us tonight. The God who was in the wilderness with his people. And now listen, I know when I say that, somebody's ears, at least Jeff's ears are perking up. Okay, listen, we're not, we're not generalizing this. We're, we're, we're not spiritualizing this like, oh, God is in your wilderness or, or something like that. Or find God in your wilderness. We're not, we're not slaying our Goliaths here. We're not, this, that's not what we're doing. We're applying rock-solid, biblical, gospel truth about the character of God that is revealed simply in the fact that these people arrive at a place called Kadesh. This is the God who goes with His people. This is the God who does not leave His people. This is the God who does not abandon His people. He is with you. He is with you. His nature is to be faithful and He does not change. He is the same, this Jesus. Yesterday, today, and forever. When you read verses in the Old Testament, like Numbers 20, verse 1, that almost seem incidental, like, oh, some people walked and they arrived at a place and then they were there. You're, you're, you're asking yourself, like, what, what does this have to do with, with Jesus? And the answer is that it becomes evident in all of His glory when we consider the character of our God that is being held out to us in the Scripture. This is our God. The faithful God. The God who is with His people. Further, when we consider the, the, the broader theological significance of of this place, I don't think it's an accident that in bringing them back to Kadesh, God has brought them to the place where 40 years earlier, both God's judgment and the good news was proclaimed through those two faithful spies. The good news that God's promises are true. And He'll take us into His rest if we'll trust Him. He'll be faithful to us. He'll be faithful to us. Our enemies won't stop Him. They won't. He's unstoppable. In Numbers 20, verse 1, Israel, they're, they're coming off four decades of waiting to see what will become of God's promises to His people. And God is about to wow them. He's about to wow them. Second major event we want to look at is the bringing of water from the rock. Look at the beginning of verse 2. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we perished when our, when our brothers perished before the Lord, why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us 
into this wretched place. It is not a place of praying or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you, your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that they yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So this, this should be a familiar scene. People said multiple times, we're coming off this 40 years stand in the wilderness because of the rebellion, because of their own belief. And now this new gen generation, they're acting just as faithless as their parents, as the previous generation. But back in Exodus 15, Israel had barely moved away from the Red Sea when they began to, to grumble about the, the lack of water. God was gracious. Provided water, but then in Exodus 17 they grumbled again. He said, They said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock the first? And let me just stop right there and say that that's what that's what Moses said the pagans would say about God if he didn't preserve. He said the pagans are going to say, You only brought us out here to kill us. And this is God's people saying, Oh, you just don't talk about godless people. Say, Lord, you just brought us out here to kill us. God responded to their grumbling by telling Moses, He said, Get everyone together, bring them before this rock, hit the rock with the staff, and when, they, when that happens, water's going to come, and people drink, and He does it, and that's what happens. Here in Numbers 20, it's 40 years later, the people, they grumble, saying in verse 5, They say, Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? Right off the bat, right off the bat. This generation, their hearts are just as sinful as the previous generation. They're no different. But there are a couple of things that are slightly different this time around. First is God's instructions. Uh, in this case, he's telling Moses to speak to the rock and that it would give water to the people. The second thing that's different is Moses. Moses, instead of obeying the voice of God to speak to the rock, Moses, in anger, he takes his staff and he strikes the rock twice. God said, speak. Moses hits the rock. The water did come from the rock and the people did drink, but God was not pleased with Moses and Aaron. This was serious for Moses and Aaron. Very serious. In verse 24, God says that they rebelled against his command. By striking the rock instead of speaking to it. In verse 12, God says that Moses and Aaron did not believe God so as to treat him holy in the sight of the people. And, and for all of the discussion about what was Moses, what was the thing that he did that led to God's displeasure, what exactly was it, and how did he do it, what was he thinking, whatever it is, when Moses struck the rock, the chapter tells us that he was acting out of anger, out of unbelief, and in disregard for God's holiness. This is serious. And yet God was gracious in providing water for the people in spite of both their sin, in spite of Moses' unbelief. The result for Moses and Aaron is yet another reminder that God is holy. 
and that he's serious about sin. Verse 12 says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. And then Aaron dies at the end of the chapter. God proved himself holy because like the generation that perished in the wilderness, Moses and Aaron would not enter him because of their rebellion. God proved himself holy. He will not trample on God's holiness. And in this whole account, it becomes abundantly clear that God's provision for Israel, see, they, they needed the water. There was no water. But God's provision for Israel in this instance is not predicated upon their faithfulness. It's not predicated upon Moses' faithfulness. Rather, we're seeing God act out of his own covenant faithfulness. <coughs> the people are being unfaithful. Aaron is being unfaithful. Moses is being unfaithful. Literally, God is the only one in this passage in the universe at this moment that is being faithful. tells us that what God is doing for them is not grounded in their faithfulness, but flows out of God's own character. He is faithful. <clears throat> this is so encouraging to me. <clears throat> that when our sin aligns us to God's faithfulness, God doesn't cease being faithful. But it's so encouraging to me our sin aligns us to God's faithfulness. God doesn't cease being faithful. And this is not the first time in Scripture, nor will it be the last, that God would be faithful to provide life for a rebellious people. <clears throat> in fact, it happens over and over, and it leaves us asking constantly throughout the Scriptures, not just in Numbers, but from the beginning, it leaves us asking, why would God be faithful to these people? Can God be faithful to these people? That's, that's the big question. Not even why. How could you, God? And the answer is that God can be faithful to these people because many years later, another Israel, the true Israel of God, Christ Himself, would go into the wilderness and He would experience hunger. But there would be an end. And then Christ, he would say from the cross, I thirst. But there would be no rock split open to give him water. Rather, his own side would be split open and his heart pierced and water would flow out of him. The true rock to quench the thirst of his people and to cleanse him. You see, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul, he, he refers back to Israel's time in the wilderness. And I don't know if he's explicit or it's just alluding uh, to the instances when God brought water from the rock, but he, he says they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, I don't think that means that the rock itself necessarily is a type of Christ or may or may not be, but I think what it at least means is that every drink of that water that they took from the physical rock in the wilderness that preserved their life, every single drink was a taste of grace that would be later purchased for them at the cross. 
grace to a rebellious people whose lives would be ransomed by the Son of God. All for whom Christ died, drank. And right now, many of you, you're, you struggle with questions like this. You know the gospel and you're trusting Christ. You are. You're trusting in Christ. You're believing on Him. It feels like a thread. But you're trusting Him and you seem to just struggle with sin. Sometimes it feels like, it feels like all you do is sin and you know that God is faithful. But you wonder, how can God be faithful to someone like, like you? Someone who at times is so faithless. Someone who at times is rebellious. Someone who at times feels so unbelieving. Someone who's struggling with the same old sin and you hate it and you want to kill it, but it won't die. There's good news for you. There's good news for me. And I'm not, I promise I'm not just trying to snatch a verse out of the air. Revelation 22, 17 says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And I read that to you, shouldn't it? All the way in the last couple of little paragraphs of the Bible, Christ is still holding out, offering life-giving water. He's still offering to quench the thirst of the weary. He's still offering cleansing. You see, there's a rock who was struck while you were yet in your sins. And while you were yet in your sin, Christ died for the ungodly. And he rose and he lives now with water flowing from life-giving wounds on his body that will never be closed. Look here, Israel, in Numbers 20 and see Absolutely an undeserving, faithless people who are tasting the benefits of grace that was purchased at the cross. Those who were not in Christ, they were only tasting water. And that was a gracious gift of God. But that's all they tasted. But those in Numbers 20 who belonged to Christ, the redeemed of God, they were drinking deeply and tasting the goodness of God in His provision, in His faithfulness, in His grace to provide life-giving water for sinners like them, for sinners like us. This is our God. He is faithful. He's gracious. This is our God. And moving on to the third major event, we want to consider in chapter 21. Chapter 21. Here beginning in verse 4. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor, by the way, of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient because of the journey. People spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So after God, he's, he's provided water for them from the rock. After 
after God had given them their first victory over the Canaanites in verses 1 and 3, we really, we, we just, we see how very like the previous generation the Israelites still are. The, the people, they become impatient. They say the last part of verse 5, we loathe this miserable food. The miserable food they're talking about is the manna that God has given them for 40 years. And let me, let me say this, this is not the last time that the Israelites will loathe God's provision bread for heaven. In fact, by the time we get to John 6, when Jesus said, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. By the time Jesus said those words, it was apparent that just as in Israel in Numbers 20 and 21, their hearts have not changed from that previous generation, so the Jews of Christ's day have the same hearts as their fathers. You see, there's a problem with man's heart. It always does the same thing when it sees God apart from God's grace. But God's response to this grumbling, their, their loathing of God's provision, begins in verse 6. There. Against judgment, the Lord has sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. So many people are going to die. God's response to their sin is judgment. God is serious about sin. And I say again, He's serious about His holiness. He's serious. As many begin to suffer and die from these snake bites, the people, they acknowledge their sin, and they, they go to Moses, they ask Moses to intercede for them, and then God responds with a, with a strange remedy. Look there again in verse 6. It says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at the people live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. When, when Moses intercedes for the people, God he commands Moses essentially to, to create what amounts to, to an idol, essentially a bronze serpent. It's an idol of a snake, like the snakes that were biting the people. And in fact, later in Israel's history, a little bit further down the timeline, this bronze serpent would have to be destroyed because people actually did start to worship it as an idol. But, but God's provision for Israel is, is this serpent. It's a, it's a, a pole, I don't know has a cross T at the top or what, but it's a pole with a bronze snake on it, the same kind that is afflicting the people. And God calls them to look at this snake with the promise that if you look, 
for the heat. And the result is that everyone who looked at the serpent says lived. Now, I want us to consider just, just the picture of this thing, this bronze serpent. They're healing. The thing that is going to fix them, it comes from looking in faith toward an image that is simultaneously both the emblem of God's judgment and the emblem of God's healing. They, they, they look up and they see in that one lifeless creature hung up for all to see. It's, it's both a picture of death and the source of life at the same time. They see both God's holy hatred for sin and God's gracious love to heal sinners. They see both the genuine offer of healing to all that is exclusive and effectual to those who through faith will look upon us. How, how many different ways can we see the cross there? Jesus, he, he makes use of this image in John 3, 14. He applies it to himself and he says, <clears throat> he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. In the very same way, he says, that that serpent was lifted up, the Son of Man must be lifted up and be held with eyes of faith. You see, it is His cross that stands as the true emblem of God's judgment and God's healing. It is His cross where we see both God's holy hatred for sin as it was poured out on Christ as well as God's gracious love. There's a greater affliction facing us, greater than any fiery serpent, is the affliction of our sin. And Christ calls hearers to understand that the only way to be healed is to look with eyes of faith upon the Son of God who was lifted up. Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, the only remedy, and a gaze fixed in faith upon Jesus is the only for administering That's all. Now, beginning to kind of wind down here. Now, the rest of the chapter falls into two sections. Verses 10 through 20 that kind of describes Israel's journey from down below, you know, up, kind of up by Moab and Again, in the middle of verse 16, God provided water for the people. When they finally move north of Moab, they encounter two different uh, enemies. And, and like the Canaanites that they've already beaten God, He gave Israel the victory uh, over those people as well. In the final section, uh, in chapter 21, from verses uh, 21 to 35, it ends with the total defeat and the destruction 
of the Amorites and the people of Bashan. And so that's, that's how the chapter ends. And it, it ends essentially with Israel poised to move into position across from Jericho and begin to enter the promised land. After 40 years in the wilderness, after sin, after rebellion, after unfaithfulness, God has remained faithful to His promises and He's brought His people to the threshold of those promises. He's proven Himself to be unstoppable, even when faced with something that seems more threatening than surrounding armies or even the devil, which is His own people. As we close, I want to point out that these promises of God, every promise he's ever made, but, but God's promises to his people, they're part of a larger plan. They're part of something bigger. And this is about more than just acquiring some real estate in the Middle East. See, there's a, there's a broader biblical setting in which Numbers exists. You see, the, the book of Numbers, this wilderness journey that they're coming out of, no book of the Bible exists in its own story. Everything in history, everything in history sits between two bookends. The Bible begins with God and his people in a garden, and there's fall, there's death, and there's a promise. And the Bible ends with God and his people in a garden, and there's redemption, there's resurrection, and there's the fulfillment of every promise. And every event in human history, every event in Bible history falls somewhere on this timeline between those two points. And the question, the question that we're asking is, how does God move history from Eden to the New Jerusalem? When we're thinking about numbers, and we're going through this numbers study, talking about our unstoppable God, we're thinking about everything pertaining to Moses in general. God, he raised up Moses to deliver God's people for the purpose of progressing that story. It's the story of what God has done in Christ to redeem a people for himself, for his glory, and for their joy. We see covenants instituted, we see promises made, we see deliverance after deliverance, and all along the way, God is he's narrowing the focus and progressively revealing how he's going to get his people from the first garden to the last garden. And in Numbers 20, we see that God, after 40 years, is now going to lead his people into the promised land, from which will come even more promises, from which will come the establishment of the kingdom, and from which will come ultimately the heir to those promises and the heir to that kingdom, Christ himself. So, so as we're studying through Numbers, don't read this as though it's just that, that boring part that you mark off in your Bible reading plan. The Bible is going somewhere. God is doing something here. 
God is revealing his unstoppable purposes for history. He's showing himself to be the unstoppable God. Let's pray. Father, you are the unstoppable God. Thank you for inviting us into what you're doing. For promising to satisfy us. For good. You live in gracious kingdom.